Welcome to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from the Rural Health Information Hub. My name is Andrew Nelson. In this podcast, we'll be talking with a variety of experts about providing rural health care, problems they've encountered, and ways in which those problems can be solved. Today's episode is in honor of National Rural Health Day, which is coming up on November 16th. Our first guest, Tammy Norville, CEO of the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health, is going to tell us about the history of National Rural Health Day and give us a preview of some of the events that are scheduled for this year's celebration. Then we'll talk to one of NOSOR's community stars, which are programs and individuals recognized by NOSOR for the great work they do for rural America. Jason Lillick, Executive Director of Three Rivers Mental Health and Chemical Dependency Clinic, will join us to discuss the work his organization does to address behavioral health and substance use disorder for rural residents. I'm talking to Tammy Norville, CEO of the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health, or NOSOR. Thank you for joining us, Tammy. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Coming up here on November 16th, we have National Rural Health Day, which is something that was founded by NOSOR. That's right. Can you tell us about when it was created and why? I definitely can. So the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health, or NOSOR, as you said, is the member association of the 50 state offices of rural health across the country. NOSOR was established in 1995 to assist state offices of rural health, or SOAR, in their efforts to improve access to and the quality of health care for rural Americans. Every state has a state office of rural health funded through the State Office of Rural Health Grant Program housed in the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy at the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA. SOAR are the one-stop shop for all things rural health and within each state. We set aside the third Thursday of November this year, November 16th, to celebrate the power of rural on National Rural Health Day as an opportunity to bring attention to and honor the incredible efforts of rural health care providers, communities, organizations, state offices of rural health, and other stakeholders dedicated to addressing the unique health care needs of rural America. It was created more than a decade ago to shine a light on all the positively unique aspects of rural health. It's an opportunity for everybody listening and your state office of rural health to help us shout out rural health efforts. The origin of the day came about in 2007 during a conference when Karen Madden, she's now the director of the New York Center for Healthcare Policy and Resource Development, the Charles D. Cook Office of Rural Health, and the Office of Primary Care and Health Systems Management, again in New York, she saw a poster for Public Health Week and thought, we don't even get a day. So Sharing that sentiment with SOAR colleagues later that day, um, the idea took shape. After much planning, development, and creative genius, NOSOR celebrated the first National Rural Health Day in 2011. Since that time, people all over the country have found reason to celebrate all things rural health in their own communities and across the country. NOSOR, state offices of rural health, and rural providers are all working towards the same goal. We have to help each other, help each other, if that makes sense, embracing the why, why we do what we do in the way that we do it, 
helping our state offices of rural health or SOAR help rural providers, patients, communities, and neighbors become and remain more well, moving the power of rural forward every day. Now it's time for all the listeners here to celebrate National Rural Health Day and the power of rural too. Yeah, can you tell us about some of the events you have planned coming up? I sure can, but for the most current list of events, see the powerofrural.org web, website. It's all one word, powerofrural.org. There's an events calendar. Activities are being added regularly, but a few special events of note are the first ever National Rural Health Day Celebration on the Hill. Of course, it's going to be November 16th at the Rayburn Office Building in Washington, D.C., so we're going to have coffee and donuts as we celebrate National Rural Health Day. And this special event will spotlight Congress members and their staff who are dedicated to advancing and raising awareness for rural health. As the proud founder of National Rural Health Day, we'll have several leading rural health organizations, including our sister organizations of the National Rural Health Association and the National Association of Rural Health Clinics, along with several others that will be in attendance to help commemorate this third Thursday in November as National Rural Health Day. Then, of course, NOSOR does kind of a big event on National Rural Health Day, and it's happening at 3 p.m. Eastern. We are going to have CDC and, and a couple of state offices talk about the power of rural in action, CDC and state strategies for rural health, where we will explore strategies at both the state and national levels to enhance the well-being of rural Americans. The newly established CDC Office of Rural Health is gonna talk about their mission and vision Plus, we have some inspiring case studies from the field featuring the transformative work in Texas and Virginia. And then on Saturday, November 18th, at starting at 8 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Eastern, will be the Rural Health Clinical Congress. Um, NOSOR is partnering again with RME Collaborative for this Rural Health Clinical Conference. It's a free virtual CME-CE conference held in conjunction with National Rural Health Day. It's a multi-topic event and will be broadcast live. The event is designed specifically for primary care clinicians, registered nurses, and advanced practice registered nurses caring for rural and underserved patients. In addition to these couple of special events, there are webinars, panel discussions, podcasts like this one, social media initiatives, local events in rural communities, SOAR events, partner events, and the like. On social media, make sure you use the hashtags, hashtag power of rural, all one word, and hashtag national rural health day, to join the virtual celebration and conversation. And don't forget to check out the Ways to Celebrate page on powerofrural.org to help plan your event. That all sounds great. Can you tell me about what a NOSOR community star is? I sure can. I'm happy to. Another facet of National Rural Health Day, and one of its most popular features, if I might say, is NOSOR's annual community star recognition program. It started in 2015 and tells the stories of people and organizations who make a difference in rural communities. Since then, these inspiring stories have been shared nationwide on National Rural Health Day, honoring more than 300 rural health stars. 
In short, Community Stars was developed to spotlight rural rock stars serving rural health nationwide. State offices of rural health nominate deserving stars. Community Stars not only highlights a group of dynamic and impressive individuals and organizations, but it also provides a better understanding of the value of your state office of rural health. This year, we'll honor 39 individuals and organizations across 39 states. Their stories will go live at powerofrural.org on November 16th. In just a couple of minutes, we're going to be talking to Jason Lilick from Three Rivers Mental Health and Chemical Dependency Clinic in South Dakota. Can you tell me about the importance of access to mental health and substance use disorder care for people in rural areas? Yes, the pandemic and current events definitely have aimed a spotlight on behavioral health challenges and shortcomings. Behavioral health has always been important and remains a vital component of the why we do what we do in the way that we do it in rural health. It's really the story of rural health. It's about living the why. We do what we do in the way that we do it to help state offices, help rural providers, patients, communities, and neighbors become and remain more well, comprehensively well, which includes behavioral health. It's how we move the power of rural forward. And if I may, in talking about our why for a second, this question of why, why you do what you do in the way that you do it, as I mentioned, um, this question is the heart and soul of the rural health business and also how you go about articulating or telling the story of services provided in our rural communities. Finding and embracing our why helps us in day-to-day operations, development of outreach efforts, and framing how we respond to challenges and change, much like what we've seen in the behavioral health space. More importantly, if you really embrace your why, your soul-deep motivation for the work you're doing, it strengthens resilience and job satisfaction exponentially. I don't know that I would say rural behavioral health is important just right now. It's always been important and remains a vital component of the why, ensuring our rural communities become and remain more well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about some of the ways in which those obstacles facing rural people can be addressed or overcome and access can be improved? Yeah, definitely. So you've probably heard this one before, stigma associated with behavioral health services, right? That's definitely one of the barriers um, to accessing and using behavioral health services. Um, Lack of services locally, and as you might imagine, workforce challenges. All three of these are exacerbated by lack of funds to start new programs. Many rural providers live on razor thin margins. So the thought of adding new service lines may seem out of reach. There may be a steep learning curve and sometimes you don't know what you don't know. That's one instance a relationship with the State Office of Rural Health could have huge impact. Remember, they're that one-stop shop for all things rural health in the state. They understand resources, tools, and other opportunities to help meet community needs. Looking forward, what are some of the ways in which NOSOR is continuing to develop and improve rural health care? NOSOR connects state offices to needed education, resources, and partners. We provide continuous capacity building and support, helping state offices build their skills to help rural health providers in communities be successful long term. 
We develop and provide education, tools, and resources on a wide range of topics. Check out our website at nosor.org. That's N-O-S-O-R-H.org to take a look at all the things we offer. Our education brings attention and in-depth understanding to key rural issues and capacities connecting state offices and their stakeholders with trusted partners that we rely on to help with these efforts. And speaking of connections, interestingly, even though our educational resources are mostly targeted at state offices of rural health, about 40% of participants are non-state office of rural health folks. As natural connectors, collaboration is in the DNA of state offices, NOSOR, and rural health care providers in general, and we do it with the intention of enhancing understanding of rural and providing resources to improve rural. We refer to this as moving the power of rural forward. Right alongside collaboration and connection is communication. It's hard to collaborate and connect without communicating. And as an association, NOSOR communicates policy and program changes regularly, and then state offices communicate with rural communities. Some of the topics are changes in rural definitions, and there are a ton of them, depending on what program you're talking about. Um, USDA rural connectivity, hospital requirements, maternity care, health professional target areas, and others just like these. NOSOR's work is accomplished with trusted partners, the state offices of rural health and their stakeholders. None of us can do this work alone. And fortunately, we don't have to. It takes all of us, each in our own way, contributing to the power of rural. Rural healthcare providers are special. If you are a rural healthcare provider, you are the backbone of the rural healthcare system. Really, the backbone of the healthcare system, the cornerstone, what all other services are built on. However, we've got to ensure our business infrastructures are solid. The fundamentals matter and have direct impact on the sustainability and viability of the organizations and the people we serve. And the way we do that is to completely and accurately tell the story of services provided. Yes, that includes coding and billing and demonstrate the value, the patient-centric way we in rural have always provided care. High quality services provided an exceptional patient experience as well as controlling cost. That's our story to tell. The important thing to remember is you're not alone. There are folks trying to provide these and other important services to their patients and neighbors across the country. Help us help you. Rural healthcare providers are paving the way, learning from our past stories, telling the stories of the present while innovating through engagement and connection with the communities we serve and other providers. Be happy, find joy, take care of yourself in order to take care of others, when you care for others, you're helping rural patients, neighbors, and communities become and remain more well, moving the power of rural forward every day. I hope y'all will join us in celebrating National Rural Health Day on Thursday, November 16th. Let us know if you have questions or if we may be of assistance. That's why we're here. Now I'm talking to Jason Lillick, Director of Three Rivers Mental Health and Chemical Dependency Clinic. Jason and his organization are one of this year's NOSOR community stars. They were nominated by the State Office of Rural Health in South Dakota. Congratulations, and thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. 
Jason, your organization works with mental health and substance use disorder care, and NOSOR has identified behavioral health as one of its priority issues to highlight this National Rural Health Day. Why is this focus on rural mental and behavioral health so important right now? I think that mental and behavioral health needs have increased in rural communities and, and rural areas. Some of that is due to just the overall uncertainty. There's a lot of uncertainty right now. Since 2020, it seems to be there's been an increase in people reaching out for for services due to there's a lot of uncertainty. Whether it's COVID, there you know in our area we've we've experienced some natural disasters or or weather events, and so really seeing an overall increase of uncertainty, which, which increases stressors and people's ability to manage the stress when it gets to uh, a certain point. The other thing that we are seeing is people not feeling like they're in control of situations or feel like they should be more in control of, of what's going on. And really, when you talk about rural and frontier areas, they're predominantly agriculturally based economies. So when you have the communities that are based on agriculture, farming and ranching, you have a lot of variables that are out of that are not under somebody's control. So you have an increase with that. Um, the other thing that we see too is an increase in trauma, whether it's stress related situational, uh, especially with our communities where we serve uh, two tribal nations, uh, Cheyenne River, Sioux Tribe, and Standing Rock. And there's also a lot of trauma. And so when we have these things are out of control, trauma, you see a lot of maladaptive or unhealthy response. So increase in high-risk behaviors, high-risk uh, decisions such as utilizing substances, you know, alcohol, drugs, and then with the maladaptive response also comes the increased risks of suicide. Can you talk about some of the ways in which Three Rivers is working to help serve the community you have there in Northwest South Dakota? Yeah, we provide outpatient mental health and behavioral health or substance abuse services uh, to the individuals in our catchment area and we provide services as a community mental health center we provide services that are supported by the state and funded through the state and our catchment areas uh, include about 10,000 square miles it's a large area so one of the ways that we try to reach out is having outpatient clinics in more remote areas, having uh, remote offices so people can get there more readily, so we can provide individual and family therapy. We also provide trauma-informed approaches, which includes EMDR, and we also provide substance abuse outpatient for in, on the individual level and also on the group level. We provide case management services where somebody is able to receive some assistance and maybe getting 
some day-to-day -day needs met, filling out paperwork. The other thing that I'm really uh, think is an important important level of care is we meet with individuals in home if needed. So if if they can't come to us, oftentimes we'll go to the home. Now sometimes this is not always logistically possible through the course of of a week or through the workday, um, but we we do have that as an option, and there are many people who need that level of care. We also provide uh, telehealth services, so we can connect by by audio visual telehealth, and then we also have as an option is is telephonic only, where individuals who are needing counseling and don't have the broadband or the technology to support that. Yeah, just really kind of trying to make it as accessible as possible. Yes, and making making it accessible, whether it's due to current mental health need or substance use disorder need and trying to help individuals get healthy, but also for crisis. And we have a 24-7 crisis line that we have, and we also have some other crisis response, which I'll talk about later. For a lot of people, the, the prospect of making an appointment and going into, you know, a behavioral health facility or something can seem very intimidating. And sometimes they might not be able to wait till 9 a.m. the next day or, you know, if it's the weekend or something. So it's fantastic that you have some of those other options available to them. When I think of rural and frontier areas and access to mental health and SUD services, I think the barriers come down to basically under four categories. The first is accessibility. And people who live in rural environments and in our areas, they have travel time to get to an appointment. Uh, you know, when I talked about that, 10,000 square miles of, of area, they may be needing to travel two plus hours to get to an appointment uh, historically. And then also when we talk about accessibility, not everybody has the broadband or the technology to support telehealth. And so it really comes down to either not having transportation um, or not having the means to do telehealth. So that's accessibility. The next is availability. You know, this is our, our services available to them. And, you know, one of the areas that are impacted by availability is, you know, having shortages or chronic shortages of, of mental health professionals that exist. And in these areas, you know, rural, and frontier are competing with more uh, metro or more urban urban areas. It seems like there's this migration towards those urban areas when when individuals are going to school. And then also availability is just having, you know, limited locations. And so, trying to reach out and have locations that are closer to where our you know, the population served are at. And then there's acceptability. You know, rural residents have a little bit more difficulty, I think, with being susceptible to stigma. 
and needing to receive, you know, mental health services. So it's really getting the opportunity to, to engage, to be present in the community, to help break down that stigma. I always find that the individuals in this area are wonderful people and are willing to help. I mean, that's, that's a common denominator, but unfortunately there's also the common denominator of difficulty in asking for help, I believe because of stigma. So that acceptability and stigma go hand in hand. And then the last one is affordability for some of our rural and, and frontier clients. This is one that I think is not as prevalent because of the partnerships that we have had with the state of South Dakota in providing services through uh, through contracts that they provide. Uh, most, most, if not all individuals uh, that are living in, in rural and frontier areas would qualify for some type of financial assistance or if they meet financial means able to get services at reduced or no no fee. So that's one that I, I believe that we've, we've done better at addressing when it comes to affordability. Were you saying that you often work with providers that would refer people to you or could you go into a little more depth about how that works? Yeah, our, our referral process as a community mental health center is we get referrals from, from various entities. We've get, we get referrals from hospitals, we get referrals from IHS, uh, we receive referrals from the schools, other people, other professionals. Then we also have individuals that, that call in and, and will request services. Then there are also other partners such as law enforcement who may make a referral based on their involvement or the unified judicial system may make some referrals. So we get various referral sources um, but most commonly we, we see this from, you know, people encouraging somebody to get some help, whether it's a family member or, uh, another professional or the school, you know, trying to, uh, make a referral for a student who may need additional supports in mental health or behavioral health. There's barriers and then there's other challenges too. You know, what I referenced earlier is, a uh, unhealthy or maladaptive response, and when you have when you have people at a high level of stress, low level of coping response, then people resort to drinking substances. You know, South South Dakota and the and some of these areas. You know, there's increased use of substances, binge drinking, and then you know, with that comes other risks such as risk for, for overdose. And then also one of the barriers are the higher risk for suicide. We definitely have some, some areas where we have a high prevalence of, of people who die by suicide. So those are some other challenges. And then the other part that I spoke to just a little bit around affordability do they have transportation money? Do they have gas to even get here? Because transportation ultimately is one of the biggest barriers. I think that's that's part of what it makes it so important to to work to kind of continue to develop ways to address these problems in rural areas where the infrastructure can just kind of be spread so thin. Yeah, and the distances. 
that, that we're, you know, that we have between between populations or where services are located. You've already kind of touched on this, but can you tell us a little bit more about some of the initiatives you've undertaken in recent years that have harnessed innovation and collaboration uh, to serve the people in your service area? Yes. So one of the the first initiatives that, that came out was we were noticing an increase in emergency calls or people in crisis. And to, to better serve that population, we have been partnering with our local law enforcement because oftentimes our law enforcement is the first point of intersect or the first point where they are, um, somebody's reaching out or responding, you know, if either somebody is called uh, law enforcement and has some concern for somebody. And when law enforcement's involved, one of the things we've done is all the sheriff's departments in the four counties that we serve all have a tablet. And the tablet allows them to connect the individual in crisis directly with a mental health provider at Three Rivers. And I think that that's innovative, not so much that we're the only ones that are doing that anywhere, but it's connecting individuals in crisis with localized mental health services with unique challenges to our area. We also know what resources are in our area. And this allows for not only crisis intervention in a more prompt manner, because it may take up to two hours just to travel one direction to go meet with somebody that's in mental health crisis. And now we can do this you know, relatively quickly, getting them in front of somebody so they're not spending you know, the, their majority of their time with law enforcement, which is not the best approach for the person with crisis. And it's not the best, always the best utilization of time for law enforcement as well. If we can get to the individual much more quickly and help reduce the, the crisis and get them the help, it's, it's really cutting down on time. So having that available has prevented individuals also from just falling through the cracks. We may know the individual or know of the individual, and uh, we know our area best. Um, this is where we all live. So we, we know what services are available. And also with, with that creates a warm handoff. Hey, I'll get you in a, I can get you an appointment. I can, whether it's with us or with another provider, which I think is, is really a, a best practice. If, if we're dealing with somebody with, with mental health crisis or substance use crisis is getting them to a provider. And that's what this allows is us to, to have a warm handoff and immediately build rapport. So it's different than just calling somebody who um, may be random, uh, who works in another area or another state providing this. It's, and I believe that relationships are the basis of change. So this supports that. So that's one of the initiatives. Another one of the initiatives is really getting community involved when it comes to suicide uh, prevention and mental health awareness doing a lot of partnerships and partnering with the school and providing 
education to the students, all of the students, also providing training to the teachers, which we provide training to also law enforcement when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention. So getting everybody educated, that helps break down some of the stigma. And getting the and once you start getting the community involved, which we have, we've had individuals now that uh, are our partners when it comes to suicide prevention and mental health awareness. And to see that volunteer group really just take things on and be a part of this, you're really seeing a, a lot of involvement from the communities, whether it's participation in just the event, but you also see people reaching out, people wanting to get involved. And that involvement has spread towards other entities wanting to get involved. I know that we also partner with our EMS team, our ambulance team here, and they wanted to help in the suicide prevention. And so one of the things that they did is we partnered together to put up 988 signage everywhere. And that in every business, every bathroom, and talking with the businesses, and it's not just handing them the the signage and saying, go put these up. It's we would hang them up personally ourselves. And then also offering businesses uh, suicide prevention training for their businesses free of charge. And also uh, we had run some ad campaigns where EMS and having local people talking about suicide prevention on the radio, you know, so you know that this is, this is somebody, you know, you know personally is is wanting to affect change and prevent suicide and and you hear them publicly speaking about that which also leads back to breaking down that stigma that i was speaking to earlier you know that acceptability and and breaking down stigmas because the more individuals involved and openly talk about this helps break down the stigma. So we've been uh, doing that. The other thing is just being involved in our communities, participating in health fairs, participating in Red Ribbon Week at the school, uh, even speaking about mental health matters uh, with, with Game Fish and Parks for some events that they do for, for teenagers. We're approaching this on various levels to increase uh, availability, accessibility, and breaking down, you know, the stigma and increasing acceptability. So those are several that we've, of collaborations that we have been doing over the past several years, which I believe has been really successful. People that, you know, might, might be doing well at the time, they sort of become aware that these services are out there so that it isn't a matter of them being in a crisis situation and, and trying to figure out what their options are then. They already have some sense mm -hmm. of these these are some people that can help me. These are some of the resources I can I can avail myself of. Absolutely. And that's that's important, you know, to start being able to put a, a face and being able to know that, oh, these are the individuals in our communities who are are able to help. And uh, if and also putting it out there, if we can't help, let's find somebody who can help. And knowing even if it's not us, we will we will assist them in getting the help that they want and need. When you mentioned the, the law enforcement officer using the 
tablet to put somebody in touch with uh, with a behavioral health provider. Do you see that often that just results in kind of stabilizing a situation and and then that's kind of the end of the person's involvement with the provider? Or is that kind of the first step in maybe establishing a course of treatment for people? It, you know, it happens in, in various ways. You know, we will have individuals that uh, maybe have a history or a history with us. Maybe they're not currently getting services. Uh, we'll reach out or that may be the first time that they've ever reached out. And so it establishes that and you know, it can go several ways. We may reach just stabilization. It depends on what's the presenting need. We may be able to help that individual through the crisis, get some, get some skills, get some, some planning. You know, when they're coming at this from a, from a level of uncertainty or feeling like a, that they're not in control of this, of the situation, a lot of stress, you know, trying to help stabilize that. So that can happen, but it also may give, us and the individual the opportunity to say you know what my needs are greater than this and i this may continue you know and helping helping somebody okay if this is if this is going to continue what can we do about it and start discussing some of the options because providing options represents hope and the future and and some optimism that there is something out there and a lot of times this is the first time that they may have reached out. Um, and so giving them an opportunity to start with improving their, their mental health and making healthy choices. Um, then there are also where there's, you know, some situations where, you know, an individual might be um, needing even a higher level of care, which would include possible hospitalization. That's somebody that is at a level of crisis and it's so acute that they need to go somewhere else and uh, and then as a mental health provider finding a place for them to go so they can get stable um, especially when it comes to you know m medications and uh, just current level of mental health acuity so it can it can end up in we've supported them the crisis has been stable everybody's in agreement that there's this they can do, which may result in follow-up, you know, referral or encourage them to get services later. Or it may be the second option is, you know, somebody needing, uh, recognizing, hey, this is, I need treatment and, and then we can find them treatment. And then the third is, you know, may go as somebody needing a higher level of, of care, which would include hospitalization. We, we really try to avoid that. Um, we really try to keep individuals in their communities with resources and try to wrap around supports as much as possible um, with that. But there are cases where hospitalization is necessary. For the patient, having somebody who can explain to them the different options they have, even then at that moment, that, that might kind of help give them a little more sense of control, a little bit more understanding instead of just... Um, you know, having these problems and just feeling like you have to either deal with it on your own or you have to just jump feet first into this this whole other world that you don't really you don't really know how it's going to mm -hmm. go. Having somebody who can kind of explain how that stuff works uh, in advance makes it much more likely that they'll embark on that that course of care and and be able to get better. 
we fear the unknown. We're hardwired to go to worst case scenario, you know, to feel that things are a threat. So we, we try to avoid those things, but it reaches a point where it can no longer be avoided. And now we can answer questions. Now we can make the unknown known. You know, what does this look like? What is What are options? And when you know the options and can make a decision, my goal in almost every situation is to empower the individual to make the best decision possible for themselves. And that's done through, through education and through listening and understanding what the needs are. That's why localized care is so important and, and knowing that these are the options. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward, are there any forms of care that you'd like to be able to expand into or improve upon? Yeah, right now we're in the developing a potential pilot for having the tablet with our EMS departments. So oftentimes that individuals that are needing some type of response from EMS may involve behavioral health. So having that as an option, that's one area that, that we want to expand upon. While there's definitely benefits to in-person therapy and counseling and so forth, um, law enforcement and EMS, for the most part, they have to be there with the person to do their thing. A lot of behavioral health services can, can be provided, at least to some extent, remotely. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, it's, it's something that without providing it remotely, it may not happen. <laughs> so now it's happening more rapidly. So it, it helps prevent certain situations from escalating even further. Because our role is to, again, to help the person in crisis calm down, make good choices. But, you know, when you have uh, other other entities involved, the defensiveness may be up or the willingness and we're able to to oftentimes help people, you know, stabilize. So again, they can get where they need to do and avoid uh, averting like a greater crisis or something else down the road. If somebody is in crisis and there's there's some sort of guidance they can get or help they can get right then, then they can kind of start a course of recovery. If they can't find those services, but they, they kind of make it through, then the next day they're like, well, that, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can just shrug it off. They're not really working on that bigger issue. Um, but having access to someone who can talk to them when they are in that crisis is really huge. Yeah. And it's, it's that, that point of decision for, for treatment and our, you know, and part of that is, is educating with, okay, taking care of your, your mental health is, is, is important. And uh, this is the start and, you know, helping individuals realize that this is more than just symptom relief. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm really stressed out. I'm really depressed. I'm really anxious. You know, after the meeting, they don't feel as depressed or they don't feel as, or they feel more stable. They're not as anxious. Well, that's symptom relief, but how do we help an individual gain mastery over, over their presenting symptoms? And that's, that's education, you know, kind of talking about the long-term goal rather than, oh, well, I feel better. So I'm done. 
saying, you know, this is, you know, this is something that you can do that are, is in your control. And many times the suggestions that we provide are non-clinical. Are you taking care of yourself? Are you taking care of your basic needs? Are you getting enough sleep? Do you have healthy activities? Do you have healthy supports? You know, looking at somebody from a holistic approach or in a holistic manner and saying, what needs are being met and not being met? And how can we do this to support either your, your journey towards improved mental health or journey towards, you know, living a lifestyle free of substances? Not every interaction with with a behavioral health provider needs needs to necessarily be this intense in depth experience. In in some cases, there there are a lot of relatively simple changes people can make um, that mm-hmm. they can have a huge impact on their um, emotional and, and mental well being. Yeah, you know I've worked with lots and lots of wonderful people in in rural and frontier. Uh, areas and some the people in this area are some of the most willing to help Um, they would do anything for anybody they they also have difficulty in asking for help i think that's the really the biggest obstacle is for people to understand that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to receive help and it's just like mental health and substance substance use disorders i mean it's these are illnesses. If you had a broken arm, you're going to want to get a cast and get help. And when we start thinking about, oh, well, there are things that can help with my mental health or um, making healthier decisions that are, are good for, for my mental health and future is understanding it from more of a, an acceptance of, well, this is an illness and there are things that can be done. I've been very pleased over the past several years of in training people's willingness to speak about their own experience with mental health or or the loss of someone who died uh, from suicide, people being more open. The more conversations that we have like that and more and more people that get involved, it's more likely that it's going to address that area of acceptability. And I, I think that is the biggest barrier uh, to overcome at this point. Um, and the other thing is trying to figure out the future of, of mental health and substance use treatment is, is also the education is helping students understand that there is a field and, and that there is a career in this and trying to help people or make some consideration for, uh, maybe a future in the field of mental health. And so that's a, another piece, cause we have to have some sustainability here because um, after if if we break down all the barriers related to acceptability and stigma we're going to still need the workforce to do this and the limitations that come with that so having a future work workforce and, and starting to educate people on the field of mental health and and what are those those options um, is going to go a long ways to helping the future of, of the overall mental health of our communities in rural America. You've been listening to Exploring Rural Health, a podcast from RHI Hub. 
In this episode, we spoke with Tammy Norville, CEO of the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health, or NOSOR, as well as Jason Lillick, Executive Director of Three Rivers Mental Health and Chemical Dependency Clinic. Look in our show notes for more information about their work and visit ruralhealthinfo.org for all things pertaining to rural health.